All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote, it's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward an investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they've also helped block a federal takeover of elections. As AMAC's membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale, four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Just News. Hello, America, and welcome to the Friday edition of John Solomon Reports. Yes, the podcast from Just the News, where today we're going to do a lot of thinking about Russia, Ukraine, the geopolitical moment the world finds itself in, in terms of security and energy and economics. And we've got two great guests, two people that come from the academic world, but have enormous real world experience. They've been on the front lines of what makes this so important. First up for today, Bill Hartung. He is a senior fellow at the Quincy Institute and really an outstanding thinker when it comes to the world security, our military spending is 2011, I think it was book, Profits of War, must reading for anyone that wants to understand how good intention things like the war on terror can be completely overtaken by people trying to just make money and we buy things we don't need, which bloats your budget to where we are today. Bill Hartung is going to join us, one of the really great thinkers in the military industrial complex space, interesting, great author, great researcher, and we'll have a lot to say, I'm sure, about Russia, Ukraine, China, Iran, you name it. And then we're going to go to one of the former international economists at the U.S. Treasury Department. He was on the front line of the economy. He knows the Fed as well as anyone. Joining us from the great Mercatus Center at George Mason University is David Beckworth, a great international economist. Two folks who really have been on the front lines of all of this debate that we're all talking about. We go to the dinner table. What are we talking about, right? Russia, Ukraine, the conflict there, the tragedy there, inflation, gas prices. Well, these guys, they understand it and they're going to be able to make sense of it and give you some thoughts about where our leaders aren't and should be taking us in the future. A really great show planned for you. Why wait any longer? Let's do a quick commercial break. When we come back, we have two great guests starting off with, of course, Bill Hartung. You're going to want to listen to what he has to say about all that military spending right after this. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. 
But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down, my blood sugar is down, my weight's down, my health is up, my sleeping patterns are better, my metabolism is up. If you wanna experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Hey folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down, my blood sugar is down, my weight's down, my health is up, my sleeping patterns are better, my metabolism is up. If you wanna experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Really excited to have this next guest on. Uh, his 2011 book, Profits of War, is must-reading for anyone who wants to understand the explosive growth of the military-industrial complex over the last two decades. He's currently a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute. Joining me right now is Bill Hartung. Bill, great to have you on the show. Yes, thanks for having me. You know, we're in this extraordinary moment where we're on the sidelines of a very large and potentially dangerous war in Europe, Russia taking its aggression out on Ukraine. And we have been in this debate, do we arm, do we not arm? Uh, is giving them MiGs a bad idea to the Ukrainians or a good idea? How do you look at the equation? First, our preparedness going into this conflict, should we have done more, should we have done less with Ukraine? And uh, the talk now of arming, how do you view that from a policy standpoint? Well, I think in terms of arming now, uh, I think it's reasonable to help Ukraine 
defend itself against the invasion uh, without taking steps that might escalate the war to a U.S.-Russian conflict. So in that regard, I think anti-tank weapons, anti-air weapons, uh, I think the combat aircraft are kind of on a cusp of how provocative they would be. Um, but I think the general notion of, of defensive support for Ukraine to strengthen their hand in any negotiations uh, makes sense to me. Um, before the war started, I think the negotiations could have been uh, more extensive. You know, g- given that um, NATO was not going to uh, admit Ukraine for any time in the foreseeable future, I think the notion of neutrality and, and not joining NATO uh, might have made a difference. But of course, that's that's past us now. And, and so the real question is how to end the war as it is. So um, I think, you know, defensive arms, but I, I wouldn't support things like a no-fly zone, for example. Yeah, that's where it seems a lot of people seem to have that concern. Um, are you surprised by the performance of the Russian military? Putin made rebuilding the Russian army a really big pillar of his reviving the Russian empire. They seem, at least anecdotally, and I think even statistically, to not be off to a very good start in this war. Any any observations about the Russian performance? I think it surprised a lot of people. Certainly Putin thought they would waltz in and, and it would be over probably yeah. in a matter of days. Uh, they've lost by some accounts, and of course it's hard to get accurate numbers, but uh, some reports have said as many as 7,000 troops, which is comparable to what the U.S. lost in 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. So uh, I think they're taking much heavier casualties than expected. There's been some reports that some of the younger recruits are um, kind of disoriented as to why they're there, and some of their tactics uh, haven't made a lot of sense, especially how they use their armored vehicles. So um, I think all that and the, the bravery and uh, you know creativity of the Ukrainian resistance has made for a different kind of war than Putin expected. Yeah, it really is remarkable. And, uh, you know, we have a TV comic who kind of has risen up to be the Winston Churchill of his country. And it's uh, it's amazing to, to see that. Are we going to see this moment as a as a reevaluation moment to our European strategy, to our global strategy? Because there's so many things that have happened, right? There seems to be a little bit more um, collaboration going on between China and Russia, something that hasn't always happened. Um, uh, Putin obviously has talked a lot about, or his people have rattled the saber swords about tactical nuclear weapons on the ground. Uh, and NATO, not NATO, who's in, who's out? Uh, is it time that we reevaluate our posture in Europe, NATO, and, and, and modernize it for the 21st century? Uh, yes, I think it's inevitable that that's going to happen. Um, I'm hoping that part of it will be Europe doing more in its own defense and being better coordinated among European NATO members. Um, I hope it doesn't lead to kind of a complete kind of global expansion. I mean, we already have, uh, you know, troops and special forces all over the world and 750 military bases and hundreds of thousands of troops and 13 aircraft carrier task forces and kind of a commitment to fight almost anywhere. And I, I would hope this would kind of prompt a reassessment about making some choices in our defense strategy. And well, that remains to be seen whether that'll happen. It's possible that Putin will come out of this weaker, uh, having drained resources and hurt his international uh, prestige and connections. And I think even China, with respect to Ukraine at least, is starting to wonder how much they really want to back Putin on this. You know, that may not affect the longer-term 
relationship. But I, I think there's still a possibility of kind of heading off a full-fledged, you know, Russia-China alliance. Yeah, now that's an interesting thing. And, and uh, of course, I think China always worries, too, that it still needs access to our markets. So it may not want to poke that uh uh, rib too hard at this moment because they still need a lot of capital from our markets and, and of course customer base from our markets so it's interesting to look at that um an odd moment uh for two reasons one joe biden turning to saudi arabia uh two saudi arabia not really reciprocating and wanting to talk to him very much about it um your analysis of biden turning to saudi arabia for oil at this moment and uh, what it may lead to, and from a military sales standpoint, what what do you think is going on in that sphere? Well, I think it's problematic. I mean, I understand the president has a domestic issue. He doesn't want to see gas prices go through the roof. He doesn't want the global oil market to get out of control. And therefore, he's approaching the Saudis and the UAE. And the UAE has agreed to pump more oil, but there's conditions yet to be explained. But yeah. my guess is it's probably more arms sales. And the Saudis, I think, want more full-throated U.S. backing, even on things like their devastating war in Yemen, uh, which has resulted directly and indirectly in the deaths of almost 400,000 people. So I don't think that's a bargain worth making, uh, even though there may be some discomfort as a result. I think, you know, the president talks about democracies versus autocracies. Arming Saudi Arabia is the exact opposite of that. And I think it undermines U.S. prestige, reputation, influence, not to mention enabling, uh, you know, crimes on the part of the Saudi regime. So I think, you know, to get some temporary increase in oil output, it's, it's not a it's not a good trade off. Yeah. Is he better off to try to restart the spigots here in America? Is that a quicker, faster and also more politically salient option for him if if need be? Yeah. I mean, I think it's more on his control. I don't know what the numbers are. Uh, in terms of what would be needed to make make a dent, but um, that's something that's in his, you know, within his uh, control more so than some of these relationships with yeah. countries that decided not to return his phone calls. Um, yeah, pretty remarkable. Which was quite quite stunning. It was. It really was. The Iran nuclear deal. You you look at this and and you've you've had a lot of years to see the first deal, the unraveling of the first deal, an effort to getting a second deal. Uh, is it the right thing for Biden to do right now, or is the concession that he's likely to have to, or the concessions plural that he's likely to have to make to get a deal, uh, uh, really going to render what America wants out of the negotiation? I think the deal would lock down Iran's ability to get a nuclear weapon for a decade or even longer. And therefore, I think it would make a lot of sense, especially in this turbulent environment. And of course, it would uh, put more oil on the market. Uh, That doesn't mean President Biden won't take a lot of flack politically at home. Um, But I I think it's it's worth it, you know, for the long term. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, Do you think Russia backs off some of its, you know, insane demands that they put on top of that? Was that just a stunt? Um, or do you think Russia is going to try to get something out of this as well? I think they may back off. Uh, there's, there's talk that uh, the deal is back on track. Um, you know, it's understandable they're kind of grasping at any leverage they have, given that a large part of the world's community and the largest economies have lined up against them. But I, I think in this case, this deal, which includes not only the U.S. and European Union, but was originally negotiated with Russia and China, um, 
I think it it could go through even even in this uh, environment. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's something we got to really keep an eye on. It's certainly going to be interesting for the world to see how that plays out because there's a lot of realignment that's probably going on right now that most Americans don't see. But that there's a bigger chess game going on in the, in the in the background of this war. What is the key going forward for uh, the United States to keep it, both its military and economic supremacy in the world? Well, I think one thing I hope we don't do is go all out on a new military buildup. You know, we're already spending more than we spent at the height of the Cold War, even before any adjustments that might happen in response to the invasion of Ukraine. So given that we have a whole range of problems, we've got to get our domestic house in order. We have to deal with issues like climate and pandemics. I think there's got to be a balance going forward of kind of traditional geopolitics and these new era problems that we need to to solve. So um, I I just hope it doesn't become kind of a new Cold War, uh, because I think that would probably be a diversion from some of the things we need to do. Yeah. And I guess that's really one of the dangers, right? We could we could tip that way, depending how this um, this war turns out. As you look out now, we have a year of track record of the of the Biden security team. Uh, do you see the outlines of a Biden doctrine and how might it be different from a Reagan doctrine or a Trump doctrine or a Clinton doctrine uh, in terms of um, its uh, policy tenets? Well, I think one thing is uh, President Biden's been more careful about the use of force. He came out of Afghanistan because he decided after 20 years it was a losing proposition. He's made clear he's not going to send troops to Ukraine or do a no-fly zone or do anything that would possibly result in direct U.S.-Russian conflict. Um, so in that sense, it's a different. I don't know if it, if it adds up to a whole doctrine, um, because in some other places, the changes are not as dramatic. Right. Uh, the, the focus on China, continuing support for Saudi Arabia. So he also, of course, has more appreciation for and and talks more respectfully to allies. And so that can have benefits. Um, but I wouldn't say he's, he's like created a, a large new doctrine, uh, but, I, but I think he has been kind of more careful in ways that probably make sense. Yeah, and you talked a little bit ago about um, Europe needing to realize that it needs to put up more for its own defense, right? That it isn't just an America-only job. Um, do you, how do you read both the rhetoric and the actual actions of what's going on in Germany? Because Germany's been the bellwether of the, of the continent for quite some time. Uh, do you think Germany realizes that the, from the Ukraine conflict that they've got to invest more in this? And is this the beginning of a larger move or is it a blip on the otherwise German-Russian relationship? That's a really good question. I mean, uh, it seems like a significant shift because they have shipped arms to Ukraine, which they had not been willing to do before. They've talked about raising their budget to uh, military budget to 2% of their yeah. gross domestic product, which given where they're starting from would be a big new investment. That's a big job. So they're talking yeah. possibly about buying U.S. fighter planes. So it seems like it's a shift. I mean, it'll be interesting uh, – after this war is over, which hopefully will be sooner rather than later, uh, how they balance the two, the, the military investments with the economic relationship they had with Russia prior to this. So I think there'll be a lot of debate in Germany about what the proper balance is. 
Yeah, no doubt. And and the allies around it as well. I mean, Sweden and Switzerland seem to have been more assertive than their normal neutrality that uh, we've come, grown used to. So it seems like the whole continent is starting to have this moment of inflection. Last question. It's a big one because it's not only a big country, but it's a big enigma, I think, in America. The China question. What it should be the focal point of our security strategy, economic strategy with China, given what we're learning about. I mean, large investment they've made in intercontinental ballistic missiles uh, recently, uh, clearly much more engaged in covert and overt economic and and security um, activities on our soil. How do you define the threat and what do you think the solution is? Well, I think for starters, we still outspend China by three to one. And we have about 13 times as many nuclear weapons. So I don't think we should get panicked about their new investments. I think, obviously, uh, they're taking a more assertive posture, and, and that's not a good thing. Um, I think somehow we need to figure out how between the U.S. and our allies in Asia, uh, there's a deterrence of China yep. from, from doing aggressive things. But then can we also, as we did during the Cold War, cooperate on some issues of, of joint concern. For, you know, in the Cold War, the U.S. still engaged in arms control with the Soviet Union. In this in, environment with China, can we still do something about climate change, given that these are the two biggest economies in terms of use of fossil fuels and so forth? So it's going to be, it's going to take some really, I think, creative and, and smart diplomacy to, to kind of supplement whatever is done in terms of deterrence. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating moment to watch it play out. I mean, there was a very clear and hard line sort of policy at the end of the Trump administration. Biden's been a little more muted, obviously released some of the programs and the academics, but also yesterday brought a pretty big case against uh, Chinese secret police on our soil operating to intimidate Americans. And um, it's uh, it's an interesting um a moment to understand how the relationships can evolve. Bill, how do fo- people follow the work? You recently moved over to the Quincy Institute. Um, how how do people follow what you're doing and stay in touch with all the good work you do? Well, the easiest way is probably uh, go to Quincy Institute, just Google it, or go to our publication, Responsible Statecraft. And either one, they can they can search me and find my most recent work. Uh, and then I write for places like Tom Dispatch sort of longer essays. Those are probably the best ways. Yeah, well, it's important work that you do. And I think the the ability that you did at a time when it wasn't popular to have this conversation, looking at some of the ridiculous spending we did in our government in the name of national security that didn't make us any safer uh, is legendary work and important work. And uh, we really applaud you for that. And thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. Well, thanks so much. Great to have you. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we've got more to talk with. We're going to be dealing with David Beckworth. used to be an economist at the Treasury Department, going to figure out this economy one way or the other. All right, we'll be right back right after this commercial break. Hey, folks, if you're a homeowner and you're like me, you want to protect your home, right? But when's the last time you checked on the title to your home? If you never have, listen to this. A new report on homeowners shows we all now have $16 trillion in equity. That's an all-time high in America. That's why you need protection from a scam the FBI calls house stealing. That's when the equity in all of our homes is the target, sadly, of scammers. If nobody's watching the title to your home, these scammers can transfer your title to their name, take out loans, and your equity could be gone. Poof, gone. 
You have to protect your equity from this despicable crime right now with triple lock protection from my good friends at HomeTitleLock.com. The first step is to check on your home's title to see if it's still in your name. Sign up with your address at HomeTitleLock.com and be sure to use the promo code JUSTNEWS. They're going to send you a complete title scan of your home's title in your first 30 days of triple lock home title protection. That's legendary protection, by the way. It's free. HomeTitleLock.com. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. One more time. Go to HomeTitleLock.com today and protect your most important asset, the equity in your home. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Our next guest was a senior economist at the U.S. Treasury Department. He is the author of some great books, including Boom and Bust Banking, and currently a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, right in my backyard here in Virginia. Joining us right now is David Beckworth. David, great to have you on. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Well, we're always interested in talking about the state of our economy. It seems like we're in a very deciding moment in terms of what sort of economy we're going to be and how we're going to come out of the challenges we're facing post-pandemic. As you look out right now, what is your uh, diagnosis of the American economy as it sits here today? Well, we are in a place that is better than it could be had things gone even worse during the pandemic. So there is, you know, a glass half full perspective, but it's a glass half full. There's there's room to grow. And of course, the probably the most pressing issue that people think and right in front of them is the high inflation right now. But in terms of like job growth, that's been pretty robust. Um, but moving forward, we, we need to you know, get inflation under control and you know, put policies in place that promote innovation, um, economic growth, and just human flourishing. Yeah, that's it. That's it. We got to get the innovation cycle going again and, and getting people back to the normal way of life. Obviously, inflation is the one that everyone's got most of the focus on right now. Uh, the Fed's action quarter point yesterday, uh, they're talking about five increases this year. Too much, too little. What's your current take on, on how the Fed is going to use monetary policy to slow down inflation? I think in hindsight, the Fed should have started tightening last year, probably fall last year. Um, in hindsight, though, it's always easier <laughs> to to see that, I, I myself was behind the curve last year, seeing how high and persistent the inflation would be. Um, but yeah, we should have had higher rates by now. I understand why the Fed only raised it a quarter of a percent because their journey to a safe landing. So they're trying to engineer a safe landing of the economy. That is, get inflation down, but preserve the recovery from the pandemic, keep the number of jobs we've gotten back, do all that magical stuff. That's very hard and delicate to do. And then on top of that, we have a war from Russia, which is pushing up oil prices and therefore will probably push up inflation, headline inflation numbers, gas prices will be up as we already know. And then we see in China that they're having another lockdown, massive lockdown, which could impact global supply chains, which would 
add additional price pressure. So the Fed already had a delicate dance coming into this period. And now you add on top of that those two big events. It's really hard for the Fed to navigate the safe landing. And my fear is, you know, it, it's going to be next to impossible. The Fed may, in fact, you know, overreact. I mean, there's two dangers. It could not react enough and inflation grows faster and faster and you know, inflation expectations take off. There's that potential. Then the other potential would be or other danger would be that uh, the Fed overreacts and throws us into a steep recession. Yeah. The fulcrum on which that seesaw turns is a few degrees in either direction, right? It's a real juggling act to to figure out that. Uh, Last summer, uh, you wrote for the New York Times, I believe it was, why you thought the Fed chair would be appointed to another term, even though Jerome Powell came from the Trump years. What is your take on that appointment? And where is the Fed at this moment in, in just how Americans trust it, where Biden puts it in its overall, in his overall economic team? Well, I'm glad you cited that New York Times piece I wrote, not the one before it, where I said inflation wouldn't be a problem last year. <laughs> so I, I failed miserably on that one, full confession on that one. Um, but on, on the on the um, Jay Powell op-ed I wrote, the reason I, I saw him as being reappointed is because he is someone who can work with both sides of the aisle. He, you know, was appointed by Republican, yeah. leans more Republican. Uh, but he, you know, he's moderate, and he, I think he reaches both sides of the aisle. In fact, yesterday they voted the names out of the Banking Senate Committee in his past 23 to 1. The only one holdout was Senator Elizabeth Warren, who didn't think he was progressive enough or right. doing enough on the agenda items that she has. So he's, he's you know, going to have probably full support going into the full body of the Senate. And I think that's great because in turbulent times, you want someone who's been true uh, been tested and true and has navigated a previous crisis. So he, you know, navigated us through the pandemic. We can argue over, you know, did the Fed do too much? Did it reach into credit markets, do things that probably better, you know, better reserved for Congress? When you start making credit decisions, you're picking winners and losers. And that's typically something we want Congress to do. But nonetheless, he navigated us through that crisis. And so it's, it's good to have someone at the helm who has some experience but also has, I think, some humility. It's something I mentioned in that piece is that in 2018, if you recall, the Fed was raising interest rates back then. They were on rate hikes and they were doing it fairly aggressively. And, and the economy began to slow down and was about to go into a recession. And in early 2019, they, they turned it around and they, they quit raising rates and they started actually lowering rates. This is before the pandemic. And that took some humility on his part. And he even said before Congress, we were wrong. Yeah. And rarely do you see You don't hear anyone in Washington say that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I admire his humility, even if you don't agree with every decision he's made. He's like, look, we we messed up. And and I think the same is true here. I think going forward, you know, he's acknowledging, look, we need to get inflation under control. In fact, yesterday at the press conference after their meeting, he even said he thinks labor markets are as tight as he's seen them in a long time, maybe too tight. Yeah, he, which said, he said unhealthy. He might have used the word unhealthy, which I've never. Unhealthy. Yeah. Yes. So so that shows he's flexible and I think has a sense of humility. And, and the other thing, just to be you know, frank, he has a great aw shucks kind of guy personality. So, you know, you Disarming. He had this. He's disarming. That's a great way to describe him. Whereas, you know, there's other previous Fed chairs who were smart, but they didn't have the political chops that he has, you know? So he had this this statement he made to some reporter 
When he became Fed chair, he said, quote, I plan to wear out the carpets on Capitol Hill. Now, we know there aren't any, aren't any carpets on Capitol Hill, it's all <laughs> granite and stuff. But point being, he planned to be on Capitol Hill visiting yeah. with congressmen and senators. And he did. Built rapport, built relationships. He reminds me of Alan Greenspan in the sense that Alan Greenspan was, was also politically smart. You know, it's, it's one thing to think of a Fed chair as an economist who understands the, the details and workings of the economy. But you got to pair that with someone who can navigate D.C. politics. And I think I, I think I am pretty certain he's the best choice we have in this current setting, given the options of choices that are out there. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes staying the course is the best thing in the middle of a crisis, not making a big change. Um, I want to ask you about that labor market. How did we get to a point where there are 1.7 job openings for every one person who's actually looking for a job? What has happened to our uh, labor market in terms of baby boomers leaving it, in terms of people who've just left the market out of uh, uh, despair or de demoralization? How did we get to a place where there's not enough workers to fill the jobs that the economy's creating? Well, there's several stories. Um, probably the easiest one start with is just the effect of the pandemic itself. Um, you know, depending on what part of the country you live in in the United States, the pandemic may have been over already for a year. In other places, you're still getting over it, depending on what the restrictions are. But there's been a lot of fear, no matter where you live, and that has held people back. So, you know, there are many places where parents couldn't send their kids to school, so one of the parents had to stay home. So there's, a, there's, there's some evidence that a lot of the people who weren't entering the labor force, a good chunk of them, not all of them, but a good chunk of them were parents. They had kids they had to take care of because schools yeah. weren't open. Um, so you can think once we get to the other side of the pandemic completely, which I think we're there, very close to it, they should be freed up. Other people might just be fearful of going back because they're worried about catching COVID. So uh, we get past that. You know, I, I think people will go back. And then, you know, there's interestingly, the, the older folks who have left the labor force. So it's true. There's a marked decline in, you know, age 65 and above people who are in the labor force. There's fewer of them. What's interesting about that, though, is there was a study done by the Kansas City Federal Reserve Bank that looked closely at the, that group of people. And they found is there's, there's really two groups within that big group. One is the group of people who are that age, retirement age. And they choose to leave. So they go from working to leaving the labor force. There's also people in that age group who are out of the labor force and rejoin the workforce. And what they found is the biggest decline came from that latter group, came from people who are older who would be normally joining. They just quit. They're the biggest group. So that tells me once their health concerns are you know, allayed, once from the right. of the pandemic, they'll probably come back as well. Now, that's, that's part of the story. We just haven't had labor supply go back. Of course, earlier in this, in this conversation, you could say, or earlier in the timeline, you could say that some of the federal government programs also made it easier not to go back. But those, those have ended. Yep. Um, and and there's, there's still a little bit of a financial cushion. I mean, some people's checkbooks are still larger than they would have been. But those are winding down. Another reason is think people will go back. Um, and I've, uh, there's some evidence that the job openings, so that's, that's from the labor supply side on labor demand, you know, the firms themselves. There's some evidence that there's, firms are posting extra jobs because they're, it's so hard to find people. They're, they're, they're trying to find any angle they can to get people to come in. So I think once the dust all settles and we're you know, well clear of the pandemic, I think the job openings and the number of people willing to work will come closer together. 
course, all of this, as I mentioned before, is going to be confounded by what's happening in Russia. If oil prices go up, if the eurozone, if Europe goes into recession, it could bleed over to here, um, and that could slow things down a bit, which we hope and pray that doesn't happen. But those things set aside, getting past the pandemic and, and all the you know behavior related to it is key to getting labor markets back to normal. It is remarkable to see those all those forces, and we got to be watching them closely. But it's also good to see people starting to feel like we're coming out of the the doldrums of the pandemic. You just see it in the marketplace, and off office yep. buildings are lit up in a way they haven't been in a while. Um, I want to turn to a fun subject because I thought of all the issues that the Senate could take on this week in the middle of a war, in the middle of an energy supply crisis, in the middle of an inflation, uh, and extraordinary inflationary pressures. The Senate chose to pick this time to um, say, you know what, we're going to make daylight savings time permanent. And you had one of my favorite tweets on this. I actually snickered at this a lot because I never thought of daylight savings time in this realm until you said this. But you wrote... Look, senators, we already have enough negative, negative supply shocks hitting the U.S. economy right now. Why add another negative supply shock like making permanent daylight savings time? Tell us why daylight savings time and productivity go hand in hand. Well, you can think of supply shocks as anything that affects the productive capacity of an economy. So clearly the pandemic made us less productive. Um, the war is going to make us less productive because vital input oil is being more scarce, more expensive. Right. Global supply chains are an, import, an input. So those are all supply shocks. They all affect the supply side or productive capacity of the economy. Now, labor is also an important input to the productive capacity. We're just talking about the labor force, people coming back. Right. This is not a huge supply shock relative to the other ones, but it's still an important one in, in the sense that People have to adjust to the time change. We all are struggling now to make this time change, and it makes us less productive. Now, yes, we'll probably be over it in a week or two. You know, we'll, we'll adjust, but it does affect us. Um, there's an immediate transition, you know, issue. We, we, you know, we're slow and we're sluggish. There's some other issues as well, like what time do kids start school? But definitely, you know, I, 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 I as being obviously a little bit joking there, <laughs> Yeah, that's it's not a fun one. No, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. But it, it does. I mean, it, it affects human productivity. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Um, and there might be some other consequences, you know, what time kids go to school and, and such. Sure. Are kids, as, are kids really as productive in the wee hours of the, in the morning when it's dark? You know, I think yeah. there's an argument maybe it's better to have them go when it's daylight. Yeah. Listen, also, I never hear anybody say in... December, geez, I want to get home early and get some daylight. It's already gone. But in the summer, you're like, I want to catch the extra hour daylight. I'm going to leave now. And so people sometimes get out because it still feels like they have a chance to get some sunshine before they get out at night. It was just a really fun tweet that caught my attention that I uh, well, thank you. I really enjoyed. Uh, last question for you, because I think as we look out in, inherent to the conflict in uh, between Russia and Ukraine and Eastern Europe is geopolitical energy. Uh, Joe Biden's... Uh, desire to hold back American energy production uh, for, you know, the stated climate goals he has. Uh, What is its net impact short term and long term on the American economy and also on American security? Because I know as an economist, you also look at security as an important factor. Well, I won't claim to be a security expert, but but clearly fossil fuels is still an important part of our economy. And uh, what's been interesting for me is to look at this from the perspective of the Federal Reserve. So I, my, my specialty is the Federal Reserve, what they're doing. 
And if you've been following them at all, they, they're getting very concerned about climate change mm -hmm. and the effect it might have on the banking system. And they've even proposed, or some people have proposed the Fed do stress tests on the banks related to climate change. And I, I've always found that a little troubling. Um, it, it's picking out one specific risk among many, many others. And, and you, if you thought that previous tweet was funny, I've been sarcastic about you know, the climate risk at the Fed. I've, I've tweeted in the past, should the Fed start stress testing, you know, a China nuclear war with the right. U.S.? Are banks robust to that? Well, now I think what we've seen with Russia and Ukraine is the same thing. There, there are plenty of risk around the world. We never know what's going to come up. It could be climate change. It could be a war with Russia, Ukraine. It could be World War III. It could be, you know, a prolonged trade war with China. All these things can affect bank balance sheets. I think it's misguided and obviously politically driven to focus on just one and dedicate all these resources to just one. A better approach would be to focus more broadly on bank safety. So, you know, simple idea, make banks fund with more capital, have more of an equity cushion. That's the best way to insure them against risk, not, you know, getting caught up in, in climate change. But going back to your original question, you're asking me about you know, what does this mean for energy? I think it's going to provide some deep soul searching, you know, in the U.S., hopefully in the U.S., and, and maybe dial back um, or slow down the movement um, from immediately cutting off some of those um, domestic sources on one hand, right? So you can imagine people having second thoughts about the Keystone Pipeline sure. and other things. Of course. But I think on the other hand, it, it may also encourage innovation to renewables. Ones that typically don't get consideration, like nuclear. nuclear I think yeah. nuclear is, is it's a huge part of our solution going forward. Also, geothermal. Both of those are very unpopular, though, with most on most most people on the climate side of the issue. But I think it, it should bring in us a deep soul searching. What are all the options available? Put them on the table. Look at the costs and benefits. And and I think you know we we'll, we would see that more nuclear, more geothermal. Those should be in consideration too. Yeah. You're right. And the, the, for the for this is the first year, I would say in the last 90 days, the first time I've seen people much more aggressively talking about nuclear, like, listen, we got to look at it. There's no way we're going to do this on wind and, power and solar alone. And so exactly. you're beginning to see uh, that uh, resurgence of the debate that got kind of taken off the table by, I think Barack Obama probably took it off the table the most. But uh, there's an, a, mo a moment now where it's bubbling back up to the top, which I think is good for good for the world. Uh, it is always, David, an honor to have you on. Your work is great. Uh, how do uh, people follow the great work you're doing at the Mercatus Center? Well, you can follow me at David Beckworth at Twitter. Just one word. At David Beckworth on Twitter. Yeah. I highly recommend it, folks. There's a lot of great economic stuff in there and a lot of good wit as well. I enjoy every time I see one of David's tweets. David, great to have you on. Look forward to uh, bringing you back on in the future. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. All right. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. So grateful that you could join us today. So grateful to the two guests we had who really, I think, stretched our thought, made us think about the big pictures and the little things in the chess game that is the economy and geopolitical security. Two great grass, two great thoughts. Don't forget our Sunday edition. We've got a great lineup there. Some of our best guests from this week on the Just the News Not Noise TV show, Ron Johnson, Jim Jordan, among them, many other good ones joining us, and uh, you won't want to miss that. Waleed Ferris, the great national security expert, really had a lot of profound things to say about the state of the world and the Iran deal. You're going to want to tune in. And of course, one of my favorite scientific epidemiologists, someone who actually sticks to the science, doesn't play all the silly political games. The great Yale epidemiologist is joining us as well. All right, folks, have a great week and may God bless you. May God bless this extraordinary country, the United States. Yep, you've been listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Thank you. God bless. Have a great weekend. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner. Whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite, you and your family need to be prepared. That's what we learned from this last pandemic, right? That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their great doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough on all the time on our shows. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust. And the new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy, and most importantly, prepared. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin and z The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all of these life-saving medications. So you know what you're doing. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID and even the bioweapon like the plague, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to keep you and your family safe from whatever the globalists throw your way. Go to www.twchealth/justnews today in order. That's twc.health/justnews and use the promo code justnews to save 10%. Hey there, it's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey. Thank you.